Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. So many fun things going on in our Cracked Rackets universe. I would be remiss if I didn't start by plugging our newest podcast, the Mini Break Podcast. It is going to be our weekly show, Monday through Friday. We will have an episode ready for you every morning, recapping the biggest play, uh, storylines, results, drama on Twitter, all of the things you want to know for your tennis update in the morning. Uh, we've had a lot of success with it so far. It's been a ton of fun. Obviously, we have Indian Wells, and all of those results could get overwhelming, so it's nice to be able to break down each day individually. So go check that out. Like, rate, subscribe, review. You know the deal by now. Check out our website, CrackedRackets.com. ton of great content on there, but enough of that. Today's interview is a very special one for me. Um, it, obviously, as a lifelong fan of the pro tennis I've trying to consume it in any ways possible and early on I found out if you go to livestream.com backslash ATP you can find just a laundry list of challenger matches available for you for streaming I've been doing that since at least 2012 2013 range it's one of my favorites websites uh, on my computer so I can always just click it right away and I am so thrilled today to bring on our guest uh, you know him on Twitter at Mike C Tennis. He, of course, is the play-by-play guy on the USTA Pro Circuit. And if you've listened to any of his calls, you know it's Mike C Tennis. Mike Cation here, joining you on the USTA Pro Circuit. Mike Cation, welcome to the Cracked Interviews podcast, and thank you for doing this. No, Alex, I'm really happy to do it, and I appreciate uh, all the work that you guys do. Uh, getting to see you guys at National Team Indoors just a couple of weeks ago in Chicago. I see how hard you're working, and I just have a lot of respect for that. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Look, you've set the standard high. I know if I want to make <laughs> yeah, sure. some sort of breakthrough, I've got to match that. So I appreciate <laughs> you saying that and, again, taking the time to come on to the podcast. There, there are so many different things I want to ask you about, but I think it would be unfair to our fans because they, they may listen to, to you know, the Cation cast. They may listen to you on the pro circuit, but – you're so focused on the match. You do such a good job of keeping that the focus of the stream that we don't often get to hear a lot about you. So I'm just curious, what's your background with the game? You know, how did you get involved with the game of tennis? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I played in high school, played USTA tournaments in juniors, um, was actually recruited to play Division Three. Um, but it I, in my, I mean, you know, it's it's something. Um, <laughs> But in in my senior year uh, state tournament, I threw out my shoulder for the second time um, and just kind of made the decision I wasn't going to play in college. I actually also had a, a chance to walk on at Northern Illinois University, um, but just just decided that after two pretty bad shoulder injuries that I wasn't going to um, wasn't going to do it. Ended up um, coming to the University of Illinois, where I hooked back up with Craig Tiley. Um, he actually had given me lessons um, when when I was a junior, um, which is crazy to think about considering he's now <laughs> CEO of Tennis Australia. But, you know, he's teaching me how to hit a forehand when I'm much younger. But that's that's what he was doing at the University of Illinois, not only the head coach of the men's tennis team, but way, way back. He was also having to give lessons on the side. Um, but, yeah, he, he got me back involved. I was in radio in Champaign and asked me to be the PA announcer for the Illinois men's tennis team which then led to uh, eventually becoming the um, PR person for the Champagne Challenger, um, which then, once I ended up quitting radio, there was uh, one of the officials who runs one of the Challenger supervisors who helps um, organize each Challenger, Keith Crossland, who said, hey, 
they've got this thing, the streaming thing, and I, I know you're a broadcast guy. You love tennis. Would you be interested? Um, and so suddenly there I was, Winnetka, July of 2013, doing my first ever play-by-play for tennis. Um, so so that's just kind of how how I ended up where I am. And I mean, it's just lucky that I was able to kind of find this opportunity that people thought highly enough of me. Um, and I had enough background that I was able to kind of fake my way through broadcasting for probably about a year before I, I think I started to actually <laughs> get a good understanding of what the pro game is versus, you know, what you or I might be playing at a, at a junior <laughs> level or, you know, division three college. It's a, it's a completely different beast, but it, it's, it's still a learning process for me. Oh, I know the feeling. I've been faking it this entire time, and <laughs> hopefully people are enjoying it. Um, the, a lot to unpack there. I want to go back to your junior days for a second. You're mm. a Midwest guy. I'm a Midwest guy. Are we talking Midwest closed? You're qualifying every year. Are you dabbling with Kalamazoo? No. What are we no, looking at? No, God, no. I mean, much, much <laughs> lower than that. Um, like, no. Um, I, was, I was playing just mostly um, Illinois USTA local events um, and, and just got noticed by a couple of Division three schools, actually, from, from my state tournament appearances. All right. Look, that's, that still counts. High school tennis is one of my formative experiences as a young Oh, for person. sure. Yeah, that's how I fell in love with the game. And I'm curious because... Like you, I was not, you know, a stud athlete. I didn't have D1 offers raining down on me, but I still managed or perhaps unfortunately fell in love with the game of tennis. It's just, it's such an empowering sport in my opinion because you're so, you know, it's just you on the court. You have to fight through so many different things physically, mentally, you know, keeping your composure. Was it an experience for you on the court? Was it something off of the court, you know? At what point, obviously, that you got a great opportunity to do the play-by-play, but you know, why were you so confident, so willing to pursue a career in you know tennis broadcasting in particular? Um, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> a little Barbara Walters action for you. Yeah, no, I mean, when when the when the Challenger streaming job popped open, I was actually kind of at this crossroads for myself personally about what I wanted to do. I'd been working morning radio, which involves getting up at three a.m. Um, for about 13 years, and I'd always had just this connection with tennis, um, some way, shape, or form for most of my life since I was 10 or something like that. And so it just kind of hit me that, like, this might be the one opportunity to do something that I actually wanted to do when I was 15. I, I will say to anybody who listens, I, like, when, when you, if you asked me what I wanted to do when I was 15 or 16 years old, it, I wanted to be a tennis broadcaster. So so then when this job opens up, it, it involved a lot of travel. I was married at the time. Um, and it's just like, I, I have to do this. Like, I, this is this is something I wanted to do all my life. Um, it, and I don't know that there was ever this one experience. I can say with certainty, though, that becoming the, the PR person um, for the Champagne Challenger and just being involved um, on that, that micro level, um, of the day-to-day of a professional tournament when, when there is that much at stake. Um, it, it, it completely changed how I viewed the sport. Um, you know, I, I, back in those days, um, Amir Delic played on, on the Illinois team, Rajiv Ram, um, some of those guys. I got to see Ivo Karlovic and Robbie Ginepri, um play in the final of the Champagne Challenger in 2001, I believe. Um, and, and just getting to see that um, and, and their daily struggles, their preparation, that kind of took it to a different level for me that when this challenger job opened up, it was just like, yeah, I, I've got to do this. I've got to be able to experience that 
week in, week out. And it's just so enjoyable as a fan to get to listen to you because I Thank think you, you really and, and of course in terms of sharing that experience yeah and enough flattery by the way you're already yeah, right. on the show <laughs> yeah so from here it's all downhill um but it, just the way you experience it is it still thrilling to you you know seven years later I know that's kind of a basic question but you've seen so many guys come through so many uh, yeah the level of uh, play change the style of the game change it, is it still for you just an incredible experience to get to see all of that oh for sure um I, I th- I celebrate the sport. Um, I, I think I take a different tact than a lot of other broadcasters just because of, of how I came into it, um, of the fact that I, I obviously I'm, I haven't been at the highest levels. I'm not, you know, with Chris Fowler, um, Brett Haber, those guys. But I, I, I come from a much more, um, I don't know, a, a, it's a lower level at the challenger level. So you have that experience of um, seeing these guys develop, grow as human beings, grow as tennis players. And my good, like, I I have the opportunity to watch them practice. I have the opportunity to be in the locker room with them after they lose. To be able to celebrate and tell that story is what I love so much about the job. I, I People have asked me before if I would, you know, drop everything and go to the tennis channel if they offered me, a, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars each year. And I, I, I think I'd have to just because the money was is so great. But I... <laughs> I love the challenger level too. Like I, the the ability to experience that so intimately with those players, um, and then see them take that to a different level, is some. It's so unique, and I'm so lucky to do that. Um, and and I don't take that for granted. Even on some of those days where I'm broadcasting 13, 14 hours in a row, I I, I get fatigued. I get tired. But the ability to celebrate these athletes as they grow and develop, as I said, both as players and as people is something I take, I take great pride in. Oh, part of your, when you are on the lookout for someone to bring you Chipotle or Starbucks <laughs> on Twitter, always one of my favorite tweets of yours. I'm, you know, yeah. those are, I, I totally get that struggle is real. I had the same, I think it was turkey, Swiss and bacon sandwich at the indoors every day. Yeah, no, you, I mean, you're, you're stuck. You you are stuck, um, and and you have people who are counting on you. And uh, Dallas this year was the first time that the Tennis Channel was also involved, which is amazing. I'm so excited that they're broadcasting some challengers this year and picking up our feed. Um, but like, there's there's no opportunity to say, hey, I, I got to miss 20 minutes to go get some food. Um, and and sometimes you'll have two like back to back three hour matches right in the middle of the lunch day, and you can't just leave from the middle of a match to go get something to eat. So yeah, there there's every once in a while. And, and there are certain guys who just know at this point to text me and we'll actually look at the, the schedule, look at how matches are progressing and just automatically bring one for me. So again, that's, that's part of it though, is that, you know, something that Brett Haber, Chris Fowler, for example, um, they don't have that intimacy with players um, that I, that I'm lucky to have. So um, and, and you'll you'll notice me, by the way, whenever I compare myself to other broadcasters, those are the two guys I tend to compare myself to um, because they're they're, you know, really there are not too many guys who didn't play at the highest levels, guys and gals. I, I apologize if I say guys a lot, but um, yeah. too many broadcasters who haven't played at the highest level. Um, Brett Haber is one. Chris Fowler is one. I'm one. Um, so uh, it's, it's just not something that um, is, is done too often. So I, I compare myself a lot to them. But, yeah, I, I have that uniqueness, that intimacy that they don't. 
and I hate to get too meta in terms of a conversation sure. about broadcasting, but I, but I do want to ask you because, as you mentioned, you're one of three guys with that sort of perspective, and I think a common thread in the tennis Twitter community, I know that's not the uh, tennis community at large, but that's at least the most vocalized part of it. You see so much frustration with commentators on TV, whether it's yeah. it's a guy ranked in the 80s and oh, I've never, no one's ever heard of this guy before. Uh, little comments like that that seem to really set fans sure. of all levels of the game off. And I'm just curious in terms of your perspective, because you knew of the challengers going in. But as you mentioned, those first years, 2013-14, when you're still feeling things out, how did you avoid making those sort of cliche comments and just... What would your perspective be in terms of maybe how broadcasting could get better, get smarter moving forward? Yeah, that's, um, that's something I think about a lot. For me, I knew I had to overcome the fact that I didn't have the experience of making those type of minute decisions on a tennis court um, at the highest levels that other broadcasters do. So I have to, at the, especially early, I had to make sure I was prepared with every single other fact that I could find. Um, if I have a six-match day, a six-match broadcast day, I will be awake four hours before we start at 10 o'clock and doing two-plus hours of prep so that I know everything I possibly can about each of those, say, 12 or 16 players, depending on if we've got some doubles or not. That's part of what I take really seriously, especially in those early days, because I knew I was going to get some things wrong about why a player might do something within a moment. What I could not afford to get wrong was basic stuff like rankings, name, how you pronounce that, what their results have been, prior matchups, style of play, big weapons. Um, and, and that's the thing when I think about broadcasting as a whole. Um, having done the U.S. Open now, uh, the Australian Open a few years, um, I see the broadcasters, there are some who have that ability to walk in, grab a packet, and are broadcasting within two minutes without knowing very much. And it, it frustrates me to all hell to, to see that. Because if you are expecting, as a broadcaster, two hours, say, of high-level entertainment, quality of play, whatever you want to call it, and you don't have the time to even put in a basic level of 20 minutes of prep, like you shouldn't be doing it. That's, that's how I've always felt and how I've always approached it. And again, the, for some players, ex-players who can walk in and say, I know what, how play should be, what, what to expect, that's, they have that ability, God bless them, especially on a color analyst, maybe they can get away with it sometimes. But I, taking the 15 or 20 minutes even at the most basic level, to become acquainted with the players on a, a very small level. It's crucial. It's what makes the best stand out from the best. And I, all of that is fair. Uh, I, I completely agree with you. In terms of the preparation, I, I, I again, I said the flattery was stopping. I can't help myself. This is my, you know, this is exciting for me. Um, your preparation is second to none. We can tell when you're on the live stream the way you present he, you know, Tommy Paul was in Charlottesville against Noah Rubin three years ago, so this final for him has to mean a lot. He was up a set and whatever. You know, you have that sort of memory. I don't know. That's not my impression of you, by the way. I'm sorry if I came off disrespectful. <laughs> no, um, not at all. <laughs> yeah, uh, but just 
that the the way you dedicate uh, yourself to the game, it's so impressive. And just for our fans, other than plugging Cracked Rackets, which they should all follow if they want to stay up to date on all <laughs> things tennis, uh, what does, if you don't mind me asking, what does yeah. your process look like? You mentioned you want to know not only who have they beaten, what are their results, but is their forehand good? You know, what, yeah. what can our fans do to sort of simulate that experience in case they want that sort of in-depth knowledge? Yeah, for, for me, so what my basic process, if I'm talking or if I've got a player I've never heard of or you know maybe came from South America is going to come on the green clay here in in April um, I have a, a standard prep sheet that I prepared for myself which is let's see na- um, trying to think about it here name age <laughs> location where they're from um, who their coach is and these are all pretty easily googled things um, current ranking career high ranking live ranking what they'll be if they win the match um, let's see, pa- uh, immediate six weeks of results, or the last six tournaments. Um, then I'll have number of quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals within the year or a specific time frame. Um, how many challengers they've won. Uh, let's see, record on the surface. <laughs> I'm trying to do this all just by memory yeah. without actually looking at my prep sheet in front of me. Um, I think that's the majority of the stuff that's just all basic Googleable is Googleable. I don't even know if that's a word, but things you can Google or find <laughs> on abstract and atptour.com. Um, and then when I have a little bit of extra time, if I get all of that basic level stuff done, then I'll start sending a text and look through tennis abstract and say, all right, Bob Jones played Noah Rubin last year uh, on over in France. Um, I'll text Noah give me two two minutes on this guy and they'll send a text back or you know I, i've got a rolodex of, of players that i'm able to text and just say what what can you tell me about this guy um and that really came in handy in australia this year um doing qualies of the australian open the last two years i'm at a point now where all the other broadcasters who are part of the qualies team are asking me um, <laughs> about all these players in terms of style and that's that's really good that i have this basis of knowledge you know this huge Rolodex, uh, if you will. There's also this database on my own computer of stuff I can pull up and say, "Here's here you go." No, it's true. Your hair has turned into just tennis information. It's evaporated. It went yeah, back in. It really has. <laughs> and the the other thing, and then we came back to it. But to me, it sounds like you need an intern. It sounds like you need someone <laughs> who's great at detailed outlines. And shameless plug for myself: ask Max Rothman, ask uh, Daniel Westoff, our producer, ask our mutual friend Jonathan Kelly. I'm great with a thorough outline. That's my thing. So shameless. Yeah, plug. if if you find a way to create and generate more money. <laughs> Um, I, I hear, so people have asked me this before, you know, why, why isn't there a color analyst? Um, you know, you and, provide and plenty of color, so ignore I, them. I appreciate you saying that, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's, um, you know, we're, I wouldn't say we're, it's a shoestring budget by any means with the USTA pro circuit. However, um, you know, the revenue stream is not the same as it would be for say, you know, a world feed for one of the grand slams or some of the five hundreds or the master series. It's, it's just a different beast. Um, so as a result, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty lucky that, um, they, they entrust me to do as much as they, as I do. Um, 
And and yeah, whenever whenever a player pops in or a coach pops in for some color commentary, I always really enjoy doing that. Um, but yeah, there there are going to be points um, I think in the in the near future, especially if my career continues to grow, where I think there will be some more challengers that open up. So Alex, I'll put in a good word for you. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's kind of yeah. you to say. Um, <laughs> I, I do want to talk about uh, some of the players on tour because yeah, of you've course. seen so much tennis. But I, a last broadcasting question for you. Uh, yeah. When I was in Cleveland, I there were obviously you weren't there, but uh, mm-hmm. they were streaming the matches on the USA Pro Circuit feed, and so yeah. I believe his name is Ragin' Cajun Chris. I got the chance oh, to boy. talk to him, and I'm sorry for revealing my sources, but he it kind of explained to me the experience of living on the bus, traveling from event <laughs> to event, getting showers wherever you can, and I'm just curious, was he kind of exaggerating, just playing it up because I was so interested, or is that All true? Right. Is that yeah. what the experience is like? No, let me let me pull people behind the curtain a little bit here so um there's a production company who actually does the 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 work in terms of the camera work um directing all of that and they're it's called live sports llc they're based out of um, beaumont texas jeff keithley's the owner um <laughs> he was actually my employer for the first three years that i was doing the stream um, broad, or live, yeah, I was doing the commentary on the stream. So he was my employer for the first three years. And one of the ways he um, tried to cut costs um, because of the fact that it's so much travel and, and he needed five, six different people to do all the work was he did actually have a production bus. So that meant it's one of those tour buses that Taylor Swift or whomever is going <laughs> to use um, where you're, you're living on the bus. There were... Uh, there, when I started, there were 12 bunks. He has since adjusted it to eight bunks on the bus. Um, but yeah, you were, you were having to count on each tournament to help you make sure that there was a locker room available for you at 1130 at night, um, so that you could shower. (laughs) Um, you, you know, you, 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 the bus stayed in place next to the courts. If you've ever come to a challenger, it's that big blue bus that just sits there and people are living on it. Um, I, I, I say nothing bad about Jeff or, or Ragin' Cajun Chris, whose Twitter account I do manage. Um, it, it, that being said, I mean, you go three weeks in a row, 21 straight days, um, doing three events, and you're in this bus, this contained space with four, five, six other individuals um, where you're, you know, not everybody's able to shower at 1130 at night. It smells um it's you get sick of each other um it's hard it was a hard hard life um and and i'm i'm very grateful it was uh, danielle gooding who was my former boss at the usta who a couple years ago just kind of realized you know in order to make me a little bit better as a commentator if i'm able to get a little bit better sleep every day um away from the courts and actually have a nice shower at the end of the day in an actual shower uh, within within a hotel room or an Airbnb, um, so she she was able to take that expense upon her within the USTA, um, and I'm I'll eternally be grateful for that. Yeah, but yes, I, all the all the stories are completely true. <laughs> I'm glad to hear. Well, you talk about the budget constraints there. I think that's a perfect segue to talk about our first topic <laughs> in terms of the tennis world right now. Uh, yeah, one the biggest storyline, at least in the tennis Twitter community, the ITF transition tour, all of the hoopla around it, and I just want to focus on a particular aspect with you because you're at the challenger level. You are seeing so many incredible players. I mean, guys who 
on any given day can beat many players in the top 100. They have that sort of talent. And you get to see up close that financial struggle these players go through, the fact that it's so hard for them to string together wins because the level's so high, let alone flights and hotel rooms and just all of these aspects. I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, not only how much of that where do you see on the players at each event as you're, you know, since you're there firsthand, but just, I, I guess, I mean, this is a big question, but just how do you see addressing this issue moving forward? Yeah, I, I actually, there, I'm, I'm kind of a mixed opinion of the whole thing. I, I applaud the idea of trying to make it a much more financially stable situation for challenger players on the whole. I think that is a absolutely... Um, that's the long-term goal we should have. Um, the strain on players is immense. Um, I, I can tell within five minutes of seeing a player whether they're going to go deep that week, typically. Um, just because you can see if a guy's been on the road for five or six weeks because they feel they have to for financial reasons... Um, you can see it in, within them. And there are times where you can see within 10 minutes of a match that a, they just don't care that particular day. Um, I think the, the ATP adding housing um, for all challengers is huge in terms of the financial cost. That part is a massive weight lifted off of the players. It is, I can't tell you how much that makes a difference. The problem, obviously, is just how the structure has now been set up in terms of the, the, the draws, the entry lists, the ranking systems. Um, it, was, it was such a confusing rollout last fall. I mean, I had players in October who were asking me, a broadcaster, what, what their actual ranking was for Australia. Um, and, and there was so much confusion, so much kind of lost in, in those details about what was going to be the you know, points for a challenger quarterfinal. At one point, it was going to be down to like eight points for a challenger quarterfinal. And then it, they changed their mind and went back to 15. Um, it, it, the, the, the grind mentally for those players more than anything at the challenger level and obviously at the futures level, it's you can't until you go on the road with these guys for two, three, four weeks at a time, you have no idea. Yeah, and it, it's just so fascinating. I got the chance to ball boy in Cleveland, and it's just one yeah. of the fun, fun things we did. And just seeing these players up close, you know, during that week, I think Braden Schnur was sick, but it's like, I have yeah, to play. Right. I need to get these points. You know, I, yep. I don't know if I'm going to get into any other events. So that, that struggle is so real. And I, I'm just curious, again, because you get to see all of these people firsthand, because you get to see all of them go through this, is it in terms of there needs to be you know more events, more opportunities available? Do you think that's feasible, or is it maybe less events, more you know more money towards those events? I don't know. Do you, do you see a clear path forward? I guess I I don't see a clear path forward because I don't think those at the top are willing to let the the economy of tennis trickle down. Yes, the if you are able to create more events, especially at a challenger level, that is absolutely the way to go. To, to give especially players who are in the top, let's just th- say as a number top 250, a livable income, you have to make more events possible. The problem is there's not a lot of money coming from the top. As a result, you know, let's, let's just say here in Champaign, the, the challenger here, 
Um, obviously, the university helps out quite a bit, but they have to scramble for sponsors. And, and you know, this year, now that the ATP has added the housing requirement, which, again, is fantastic for the players, but tournaments now have to come up with an extra roughly $20,000 on average. Um, and that's worldwide, right? So it's not just the USTA, it's worldwide. Everybody has to come up with another, say, $20,000 to cover housing. The money from the ATP is not really trickling down as a result to, to help provide that cost. So the tournaments are bearing the, the brunt of that. Um, and I think that's right now why you're seeing, you know, you're seeing a lot of changes on the calendar, um, you know, of, of tournaments that are just saying, you know, we don't know if we can actually keep up doing this year in, year out. Um, so I, I think if you want to have a feasible model in terms of how to make the challenger level and below just a little bit more sound, um, more players financially stable, it has to come from the top down. You can't keep increasing the money for the winner of each of these grand slams when, you know, that extra $500,000 is going to make a massive impact um, at the granular, granular level. Um, and I, I just don't think those at the top are going to be willing to let that go. It will be an interesting thing to watch develop, obviously, with everyone being in Indian Wells. There have been a ton of different storylines coming out of yeah. there, and it, there are too many different signals to see well, which way is going anywhere. It's it's just a shame because you'd love to focus on the tennis. So many talented guys right now, it feels like, in the top 300, especially right. as a fan of American tennis, as a fan of college tennis. So many recognizable names I want to switch gears here because I know you've got to go play some tennis yourself. Yeah, I'm so I actually I, I, go hit. Yeah, and that'll be fast. Look, if there's a stream for that, I'm in. Just yeah, kinda, you don't want that. No, uh, just listen, kind of mutter nobody, to yourself. Nobody needs to see Fatty run around, okay? <laughs> I don't know. You versus Raging Cage and Chris would yeah, be a nice well, match. I'd enjoy I've, that. We've, we've done that before. It, didn't, <laughs> it was not pretty for him. Okay, well... As I mentioned, you get to see all of these guys. The challenger level is the breakthrough level. It's where young players have to establish themselves at a new ranking system, whatever. But back in the day, you earn your rankings points at the challenger level. You build your way up the rankings. And so you've gotten to see so many talented players. A group we like to focus on in Cracked Rackets, they were defined as the next-gen Americans. Some of them has have aged out. But as they're all younger than me, born after 1995, they're still next-gen. Like, yeah. relax. And so I, I want to kind of break them down by age group. I want to okay. start with we'll, – we'll start with the 96s in particular, Jared Donaldson, Ernesto Escobedo, and Noah Rubin. And they're all fascinating people, but I want to start with Ernesto Escobedo because I was with you in Kerry spiritually when he hmm. beat Francis Tiafo in that final. And the level of tennis in that match just threw the roof. And I, I'm just curious – We've seen him. He he broke the top 100 for a little bit. He he yeah. had some success, and now he's back at the challenger level. Has something changed? You know, what what do you see? And then in general, what do you think of the 96s? Yeah, with Ernesto, he hurt his back um, the next uh, the next spring. It was around uh, Houston. It was right around when he actually was at his career high, and he hurt his back. And I think he tried to force it for months, literally months. Um, and I think it was for him more than anything, it was just a matter of, of that complete loss of confidence for him. Um, and I, I don't know that he's ever really recovered that. And it's hard. It's been hard to watch because I don't think he has that same belief that he did that. He had such a lack of fear. Um, 
that it was just so much fun to watch. I think he's he's gotten as a result he gets a little bit predictable in some of the the bigger moments as a result of of not having those you know week in week out results. Um, so I, I think for him, he just needs a, a, a fresh reset. He's started working a little bit with Diego Moyano at the beginning of the year um, down at the USTA campus, which I think is, is huge for him. Um, boy, you think about Jared Donaldson, too. That's another guy. I, I have no idea what to expect from him right now. Um, I, I was such a big fan of, of how he and his family um, and initially the, the Dent family, who were his coaches, how they were setting up his pattern so that he was um, going to be at his peak more so in terms of results at 22-23. Um, and I think he was really on a really good path again. He's another guy injury-wise. You know, he's been on entry lists, and I guess he played this week, um, which is, is great to see. Um, but, I, I mean, how do you, how do you know? Um, I, I think he has a lot of the, the strokes that are necessary. I think he has the power. Um, the, the, the strokes, the, the capability, the mindset is there. Um, physically, I don't know. Noah is Noah's Noah. Um, well, can, can I, do you mind if I yeah, interject go ahead, real of course. quick? No, yeah, no, sure, I, sure, sure. On the Jared front, and I kind of have a question for all of these guys, but we'll try and breeze through it. You know, for him, one challenger title in his career, he wins in Maui, and that's it. Yeah. And yep. kind of breezes through that. I mean, breezes through is, is extreme, but, you know, he was so ready to be on the ATP level at 19, 20, 21 years old. He had the weapons already. I mean, for you, is there a clear distinction? Can you tell between the guys who are ready for that jump and the guys who aren't? Because, you know, as I mentioned, you get to see all of them firsthand. Yeah, well, I, I, don't, I think he would, he would actually disagree with you that he was ready at that time. Um, Interesting. I like this. He, yeah, he, he actually was very much in, I've got to stay the course and have a lot of things that I need to continue to work on. Um, his family would say the same thing. His coaches would all say the same thing. They said, we don't want to rush him in terms of getting out there, going and playing a lot of matches and probably losing them right now versus they wanted to develop uh, ways to win, multiple ways to win so that when he was 22, 23, you know, now he was going to be prepared to be top 50. Um, and I, I think they were actually on that good progression. It was a much slower progression than we're used to now. I mean, we, we expect as soon as guys can get up, just get them up there. Um, and, and that was just not his, their way of doing it as a, as a whole group. Um, and I actually really like it because I just think there are very few 19, 20-year-old kids who are actually ready to handle that. Yeah. Uh, I think that's totally fair. And then you talked about Noah Rubin yeah. on him real quick. And, and look, I, I'm a huge fan of Noah. Obviously, I've gotten the chance to hang out with him a little bit when we were in Stowe, Vermont, talked to him a little bit in Cleveland. And, yeah. you know, you're not going to meet a guy who hustles harder. I know that's cliche. You're not going to meet a guy who's putting in more work. You know, he's certainly matching anyone's work ethic. And yet still physically, it's just a factor given the changes in the game, the importance of having a big first serve, the importance of having a weapon to turn to to finish points because everyone's so fit. All these courts are slowing down. Yeah. Um, well, if, here's the thing about Noah with, with that in particular. His serve is sneaky good. Sneaky. The sneaky slice out wide. Quick. Um, he's, he, but he's, for, for his size, he actually has some heat. Um, again, don't get me wrong. It's not, it's not one of the big ones, but for him uh, and, and I, I, for him, I think it's much more about mentality, uh, of match in match out. 
uh, it has to be the same effort level for each one. Um, and I think that's something, if you watch him in a match where he's not there, I, I th- uh, it was New York. Um, God, who did he lose to in New York this year? But he, you could hear him actually on the, on the stream. I was watching it and just saying to himself, get focused, get focused. And I think that's always the, the biggest task for him is staying um, minute, staying within that particular match, that particular moment. And I think it was Jordan Thompson that he played. Yeah, it was. was. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, of course. uh, Something like that. Um, Yeah, and I want to move on because – but I I just – in general, on this 96 group, I mean, it's still encouraging, right? There's still a lot to be positive about for fans of American tennis. I think so. Um, I'm really interested to see Jared and how he structures this spring. Um, And and I know he'll – I I would guess he's going to be on the green clay with us. Um, so it'll be really nice to catch up with him again. Um, but I, I physically for him is the big thing. Escobedo, I, I, I don't know how you get your mind back, um, but he has to get into that little grind mentality. And Noah's just going to be Noah. Um, he's such a unique individual. Um, and I, I, I also think with Noah, he's obviously what he's doing with behind the racket is phenomenal. Um, I, I worry personally that it's going to, distract him from the tennis i I have that concern for him um but we'll we'll see how he handles that pressure i'm ready to bring noah into the greater racket family beyond the racket (laughs) cracked rackets we'll we'll have to figure something out um but okay let's move on to the 97s you asked me not for direct comparisons but yeah where i get you in trouble more impressive (laughs) back-to-back title one when or i guess three titles for fritz but still when fritz went u.s open title then won those back-to-back challengers in california or when opelka ends his year last year back-to-back winners oh absolutely fritz one, yeah, I mean, without it, without a doubt. Um, and when when you saw that run, were you like this guy? Yeah, that was that was special. Um, those were those were special moments in in NorCal. Um, God, he had a match against uh, Jared Donaldson, uh, where Jared couldn't, couldn't. It was something like one of nineteen on break chances, Sacramento, um, and and Fritz was able to withstand that. And you could just sense there was something special about his confidence. Um, and, and the way he was able to, to structure points in those big moments, you, you just got that sense that he had, um, he was brimming with belief and it was fun to watch. Um, I, I think he probably won't admit it, but I, I think when, when he got married and, and then had a, at a baby, a son at a very early age, I think that probably did take away, um, from just a natural progression for him to where he is now. So maybe that, you know, you hate to say something like that, but it probably set him back a year in terms of what you thought his progression would be. But yeah, that was that was really special. And and despite how slow like the champagne courts are, Riley Opelka winning back to back um, indoor titles is not necessarily surprising. Right No, back to back to back. If you include New York. Yeah, no, that that's true. That was a different that was a different beast. (laughs) Especially no, after what he, the way he performed in Dallas and how just absolutely horrendous his mindset was in Dallas in a couple of matches. So the Bellucci for him match to in cut, particular, God, he was, it was, it was awful. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, but like he'll he'll, he'll 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 admit it. Like he knew it was bad. Um, he, and he'll he jokes about the the T tour as he calls it, the transition tour. Um, <laughs> the but yeah he. When he is when he is mentally like locked in, um, and I think I think he kind of suffers at times from the same thing that Kyrgios does, in terms of like being so ultra focused in those bigger matches against the bigger opponents. 
um, but maybe not so much so for the, I guess you'd say, quote unquote, lower opponents. Um, I think that's something that he maybe suffers from a little bit as well. And, and that's it's so typical for younger players. They get up for the big ones, but the ability to do it day after day after day after day, no matter who the opponent is, that's what separates the, the truly unique players. So then last thing on the 97s, yeah, uh, it, it's it, maybe I'm making this up in my head, but if you followed the American Juniors, I was obviously a huge Colette Lewis fan as well. You know the 96s, 97, 98s. The 98s were the superstars. You had Tiafo, you had Kozlov, you had Mo, And so these 97s go on this tremendous run. You know, they steal three slams on the junior circuit, and then they yeah. come on to the challenger tour. Was there any sense of a chip on the shoulder of, of this group? Was there something in common about Because we've seen you know, mm. them. Obviously, Tommy Paul had his run with the City Open with Atlanta, and he's injured, but we've seen him play at such a high level. Um, Chris Eubanks, guy who went to college, he continues to ascend the rankings as well. It, was it something like that, or is it just you know, each of these individuals are uniquely talented? I, I think there is something to be said about that. They they are uniquely talented, um, and Tommy Tommy is a unique individual. I can say that. Um, they pushed each other quite a bit. Um, I think it took Tommy a little bit longer to adjust to life by himself um, when he wasn't with Riley, when he wasn't with Taylor, and I think it took Tommy just a little bit more time to grow up in that that sense. Um, but with Taylor and Riley, they pushed each other so hard um, that that I think when when Taylor had that big breakthrough, it kind of set Riley back maybe just a little bit. And then he's like, I can do this, too. And I, I've got to get to that point. So I think they all pushed each other really well. And I think it was just a matter of I think Tommy's the only one who really hasn't ascended to that next level consistently. And I think a lot of that, though, is due to the fact that his arm was was in such bad shape um, God, two years ago now. Um, so I. Yeah. I don't, know. I don't know that there was a chip on, on their shoulders. I do think they pushed each other very, very hard, and I think that was actually what, what really made Taylor such a good player early. It's a fascinating dynamic because you it can is. tell they're all friends, and it's so interesting to watch. Hopefully it's something yeah. that continues. I hope so, too, because I, I, I like all those guys quite a bit, um, and they're so different. Each of their personalities are so different. And then you see, like, Taylor Fritz is hopping on a, a stream with Ninja playing Fortnite, and he and he and Kaz and Curios are all you know you know playing Apex and and whatever uh, lately. Um, but there there it's it's such a different dynamic, um, and I know that you know in the grander scheme the the idea of Curios and you know being up for big matches and not so much for the the two fifties the the base level against 50, you know guy who's fifty in the world. Like this is this is who these these young players are. Um, they are a lot about the flash, a lot about um, what what makes them extraordinary on a day to day basis, and maybe not as solid on that day to day basis. And it's it's so much fun to watch because you never know when you're going to get this moment of brilliance or a complete clunker. Well, I I think the class that epitomizes that is the '98s. You have a group that is just so talented in. And by the way, congratulations to you for all of those references. Apex at your age, very well done. Hey, um, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> there goes the internship. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> in terms of the 1998s, you know, the guy who ran out to the gates, and I'm saying that because he was age 12, it might have been his first run ever, was Stefan Kozlov. He was the yeah. name for the longest time. Then, of course, 
uh, Orange Bowl happens. Tiafo wins it. Tiafo goes on a little run in Sarasota. Meanwhile, Michael Moe in the background, I think, was an Eddie Herb Boys 12s champion. He's had all of this success. And now it's just at such an interesting point because I'm sure more people know about the 97s than they do some of the lesser-known 98s in terms of the Michael Moes, who's had some flirtations with the ATP Tour but just can't really get healthy, and then the Stefan Kozlov conundrum, which will hurt me too much to get into. It's just, I I don't know, what are your thoughts about the 98s? Stefan Kozlov had a run in Sacramento. Um, It was the same same week, I believe, as Fritz winning, um, and and he was 16, and he came up to me and, like, just... I remember this distinctly. Like, I just noticed that there was somebody behind me as I was broadcasting. And I just, like, kept looking behind me. And I, I hadn't met Kaz before. And he just, I, like, I, on a break, I just was, like, about to turn around and just, like, what the f*** is wrong with you? Excuse, <laughs> excuse my language. But I was so distracted by somebody directly behind me. And he just looks at me. He's like, I'm Stefan Kozlov. It's nice to meet you, Mike. And I'm like, holy hell. Um, and he he was so unique at, at that age, so mature um, in his ability to win and be creative. It, it is it is. Yeah, much like you, I, I could spend 15 minutes talking about how how like it, it just boggles my mind seeing him struggle as much as he has over the last year. That was um, the Sacramento. He lost a query in the final. He semi finals something like that but yeah yeah i, re- I remember that match i just remember the again the was shot it the final? no it was the final you're absolutely right it was the final and just the shot selection that yes no he, the serve has never been something any kozlov slappy has been in love with but just the way he can work a court slice drop shot angle crafty volleys out of the air swinging volleys out of the air yeah it, it physically, was it was always going to be a question, but then you know he he really struggled last year. Has not come out of the gate strong this year. I, I don't know. I I, 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 I again, here's here's the on. thing. I I love cause. Uh, I truly do. Um, and it's that's the thing. Again, when I when I was talking earlier in this in the podcast about you know how I get to see these guys intimately, um, and and see the frustration on their face when they when they know they're capable of something and just not able to achieve it. I can't tell you how painful that is to to be able to see within a, within a match when they actually, you know, look at me since I'm actually courtside and they just it's this look of exasperation and I saw that at times last year from Kozlov and I never would have anticipated seeing that. I I've made the comparison on air before with Kozlov of Donald Young, another guy who had tremendous success as a junior, was crafty, was creative, was very thoughtful about how he played and then when he had to move up in class, it it was not there all the time for him. Um and and regardless of what you think about Donald Young, he's had a good career. It might not be what you say is successful because he was number one for so long as a junior but I mean a guy who's been inside the top 50 on multiple occasions made a ton of money um, and and was able to compete at the highest levels not necessarily win at you know the tournaments at the highest levels but was able to compete there and that's I think right now that's a very reasonable goal for Stefan Kozlov once he gets back that mentality of okay maybe I'm not going to be number one necessarily but I know I can compete and beat these guys. Um, so he's, he's this little X factor that I, I could see him you know, falling off the face of the earth for a while. Um, I could also see him have this incredible comeback if, if he wants it. So 
Um, so that's cause, and that's, you know, you and I could talk about cause for a long, long time, but um, <laughs> Francis yes. is Francis. Is Francis. Um, there it is. That's what I was looking for. I was going to say, I know you have to run, so quick take. Francis, <laughs> yeah. Australian open run, fantastic. Couple first round losses. People are ready to, you know, sound the alarm. But c- caution, uh, cautious optimism, right? That's the, Yeah, the so I think back to, to when he first had some, some challenger success. And then, I, I, uh, how do I want to phrase this? It wasn't that he got... Sarasota I, I he was, was sweet, and then people yes. were like, oh, this is Francis Tiafa. He can get complacent. Um, and I, I think that's the way to put it, is that he can, he can rest on his laurels of, hey, I just had some really good success. You know, let's have some fun. And that's, that's great. But then you're going to have these baffling first round losses um, some of the times. And I, I think that's, that's going to be he, – he made a strong commitment to stay focused within uh, point by point, set by set. I remember back when he was starting to make his run first, you know, at, at the challenger level – um, yeah, right before Sarasota, and he was working with Robbie Ginepri, and they said you have to stop going three sets. He had this incredible record, and I, I, I counted it out one time of how many times he won the first and lost the second, and it was an absurd number um, where he wasn't able to get things done in the second set because he would lose lose focus. He would win a, a set so cleanly and quickly, and then would just lose that focus and be complacent. And I think they hammered that out so that he was conserving energy within a week. And then it was a matter of, of having success at that challenger level. And I think that's what he's going to have to do now um, is get back to that mentality of focus, focus, focus from, from point one set to set. Um, but I, I, I think he's fine and plenty of optimism for, for Francis. And Michael Moe, too, if he can stay healthy. He had to make a coaching change last year. Glenn Weiner, who'd been with him for so long down at IMG, um, wanted to make, have a family. Um, so he, he departed. Um, and so I know Mike had some early success with Alexander Vosky right away. Um, and then that tends to happen after coaching changes. I think, I think it'll be a matter of time. And, and like you said, Alex, uh, for him more than anything, just getting healthy, um, sustained health would be huge for him. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, you have to run, so I'm reserving the right to bring you back for a rapid-fire segment. Uh, I appreciate you saying that. But my last question, I have to get yeah, this in. Sure. I'm so sorry. Set the scene no, for I, our listeners. I, it's fine. If I'm, if I'm late to play tennis tonight, it's okay. Oh, that's kind of you to say. But set the scene for our listeners. We are in, I believe, Sarasota, Florida. Francis yeah. Tiafo, Mitchell sure. Kruger. Yeah. A, what seemed to be a lucid phone in the audience projecting yeah. – We'll just say it. It sounded like two people were f***ing. And you as the commentator bring us – just what are your thoughts as that's going on? And are you thinking to yourself as you're commentating it, oh, my God? Yeah, it was – what's funny is initially I didn't hear it um, because I was wearing headphones that didn't have the courtside mic amplified too too loud. Um, (laughs) So I didn't hear it, but I saw the players kind of looking. And then I had to – I took one headphone off so that I could actually hear it. Um, and so this, mind you, this is all within a span of like 30 seconds, the way I'm going to describe it. But at first I'm just like, oh man, it's somebody's phone in the crowd. Like how embarrassing that they, they had this on their phone. They were watching and just like pulled up a, a browser real quick to maybe like research one of the players. And then all of a sudden there's, uh, then I was, I saw Mitchell Kruger start to walk towards his bag and I'm like, oh Jesus Christ, Mitch. <laughs> Because I, I genuinely thought it was his phone 
that maybe he'd been watching burn right before the <laughs> match. Like, I, I said that to him afterwards, so I feel fine saying it now. But then I was just like, oh, my God. Then he grabbed the ball and just hit it at the, the apartment. Um, it, all, all of this was in within 30 seconds. Like, you just try to adequately describe what was going on, because I don't necessarily know how loud it is for people who are watching the stream. Like, I had no idea. Um, so, I, I mean, it was just this beautiful moment, and there was not a single person on Earth who could have been better than Francis Tiafo in that moment. I mean, it, it just... It, it, to have that particular personality right there for that particular thing, uh, a godsend. No, uh, it was one of the all-time moments. That, you getting hit, uh, I mean, there's too many to list to go through now, but <laughs> you did a fantastic job, and I feel like the, I think it was a Deadspin article that really brought attention to it. They gave it was huge for me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, listen, I, I, to all kidding aside, like, suddenly... People were just like, hey, there, there's commentary at Challengers. I mean, it was, it was like, all kidding aside, it's a big deal. Like, no, wait, I agree. this is a, this is, oh, there, there are commentators here? Um, and, and that's the thing. Like, like, exposure is such an important part for these players, um, for this Challenger Tour, um, for the ITF World Tennis Tour, whatever. I, I, I'll just end with this story. So, as I mentioned, the Tennis Channel covered Dallas. They picked up our feed for Dallas. Um, and so we, we did Monday. Um, and it was, it was kind of, you know, we're trying to figure out the kinks, make sure everybody was happy with it. But then the next day, the very next day, around four o'clock, this woman comes into the broadcast booth in Dallas. And she says, are you the person I saw or I heard on TV yesterday? I said, I I believe so. (laughs) Um, And she said, I just want you to know, I live about two and a half hours away, but I didn't, I didn't even know about this thing. And I saw it on tennis channel last night and I decided today I didn't have anything to do. I was going to drive over. And then it just made me again, think we just have to find ways to expose more people to this challenger level especially, if we're talking about in the grand scheme with the ATP and the ITF, how we make it so that we're in many ways equivalent to golf and that say the top 200, 250 people are making good livable money. I mean, that's where it starts. The, the fact that the media takes the challenger level seriously, the fact that fans take the challenger level seriously, the fact that all broadcasters take the challenger level seriously, it's crucial. And, and as much as we joke about the, the sounds in Sarasota and, and, and how funny it was, the fact that people then said, wait a minute, there's a guy commentating on these? Like, Chris Fowler reached out to me. Chris Fowler reached out to me because of that. Like, think about that. All of a sudden, this is the guy who does commentary play-by-play on ESPN. And he's just like, how about that? There's a guy doing commentary on these challengers. It must be, it must be a thing. Um, so like, that's the thing. If, if uh, it's such a, you guys have such a unique and, and dedicated hardcore tennis audience. Um, and I, I don't really need to say it to this particular audience, but I, I always say it, go watch some professional tennis. If it comes to your neighborhood, if you have a challenger, if you have whatever they call futures now, just go out and watch it, see the struggle, see the competitiveness, see the level. Um, and, and you won't, you won't turn away. So that's, that's my, that's my pitch. 
the only thing more awesome than that, you're going to get mad at me for saying another thing, your your <laughs> four hands for philanthropy effort. I, I, would, uh, I appreciate I, that. I had to bring it up, of course. It's a benefit for Crisis Nursery. It's something yeah. that you've been doing, I think, for the past, what, two, three, four years? Yeah, we've done we've done three of them. We're going to do one more. Unfortunately, I'm in the process of moving right now, uh, closing on a house in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in two weeks. Oh, can we get a West put... off? Can we get a Mazel Tov? Congratulations! Sound effect. Mazel Yeah, if if you want to call it congratulations, I'm terrified of the whole thing right now. <laughs> trying to also sell my house, so I have. I have literally like 50 pieces of, of equipment that all of these players have been kind enough to donate over the last couple of years, things they've broken. Um, I've got a, let's see, uh, Noah Rubin's shoes, uh, which are, are, are very important. Fixed uh, cam- or broken? Which pair? <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not the pair of shoes. Uh, cam, cam Nori signed a couple of shoes for me. Chris Eubanks, um, Bjorn Fertangelo. Um, and I have I have several other players who have been kind enough to say, hey, just reach out to me. Um, we'll send you something, which I have to do once I actually get moved and settled in a new place in Oklahoma and and have a little bit more space. But I'm I'm really excited, and thank you for mentioning that because it's um, it's something I just I, a way I want to give back um, w- with this sport that I love, the ability to give back to kids in particular, um, and Crisis Nursery helps uh, kids six and under in emergency situations here in Champaign. So I appreciate you mentioning that. Of course. And for our listeners, where can they find out more information? And, you know, if they want to get involved, help you do that. Yeah, uh, it's it's a website that I have. It's very complicated. It's MikeCation.com. <laughs> C-A-T-I-O-N.com. But, uh, yeah, it, I, always, I'm, I always try to keep, when I'm broadcasting, make sure that I'm reaching out and, and communicating with people through Twitter um, or on Instagram, whatever uh, various form you want to communicate. But I, I try my best to, to do that because I think it's, again, it's important to make sure people feel connected, especially at this level. I 100% agree with you. Last thing to plug, the Cation Cast. Where can our listeners yeah. find you? Find more of that. The Cation Cast is available uh, on Apple, yeah, iTunes, uh, wherever you're doing your, your podcast listening. We, we've got it there. But yeah, uh, let's see, I've got to get some done in April, I uh, think. Uh, yeah, uh, we'll man. I look forward to hearing the new additions. Um, and, Mike, I, I'm going to let you go, but thank you so much for taking the time. I, again, I've stressed this before, but it's always fun to hear. You know, your your voice being on the matches is so far superior to there being no voice. You Just the, the class, the commentary, the intelligence, the wit, the interactions. So fun for us as viewers to get to see that. So thank you for taking the time for coming on this podcast, and hopefully we'll get to do it again soon. Yeah, I appreciate it. And again, I, I just have such respect for what you guys are doing, too. Um, in any time you have people who care so much, especially for, you know, when you're not necessarily just talking about Serena and Fed and Nadal um, and the, the biggest storylines, um, that, that takes a lot of effort and time. Um, and I, I have just the utmost respect for what you guys are doing, too, to help try to grow the game. And that's such an important thing. Oh, well, thank you for saying that, Mike. Go swing. Go hit some forehands. I will. I will. All right. Take care.